And ham for us is on Christmas Day, but the, the actual ham meal that we really love is the Boxing Day meal. So it's a big procession to eat ham on the Boxing Day, and it's and I love it. I I absolutely love it. It's the highlight. This is the crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Although he'd carved out a career in some of Sydney's best restaurants, making connections with quality producers, it wasn't until he went on a trip to the United Kingdom that Mike McInerney discovered a more holistic approach to food. Buoyed by the impact of his newfound view of food, he embarked on a journey to change his own conversation that put the focus on produce, shared meals, abundance, and most importantly, connections. Mike, how are you? I'm very good, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. You've done um, the unthinkable and um, travelled all the way over the other side of the earth. <laughs> I know. Do you know what? As soon as those tickets were available, my wife jumped on them. And uh, you can hardly blame it. It's been a while since we've been back, so it's nice nice to be here. But it's, um, it's a lovely day in Jersey today. I can see some blue sky for the very first time in about a week. So... Happy, happy, happy. You're over in the UK and in, in Jersey, as you, as you mentioned. Well, tell us a bit about what it's like being there. Well, it's, it's fascinating because um, Joss is, um, Joss, my wife's English, so we'd often come back uh, once a year to the UK. Uh, her dad is in Jersey. And um, what, what I've noticed since coming back this time is that there's been a real amazing regeneration of of farming and production on the island. It's really lovely to see. There's a, a younger sort of fold moving back to the island um, a little earlier in their time. I guess Jersey is an interesting place because it doesn't have a university on, on the island. So a lot of people after school, they sort of, they jump ship, go and travel and come back or maybe not come back. But there's a lot of younger people moving back earlier, setting up sort of farming and, and um like there's a really lovely goats goat's milk farm not far from where I am. The, the production is tiny. Um, there's a lot of people that are really getting into into um, fishing uh, on the island. And, and it's just you can feel it and you can see it um, that there's a real love for local. Um, you know, there's, there's people that are very proud of the Jersey herd and, and also the, the, the famous Jersey Royal Potatoes over here and they, they're owned by massive big companies, but there are smaller people now wanting to contribute to that production, which is really great to see. You had a stellar career, but it was a, a moment over in the United Kingdom. It sort of um, moved you forward towards the Kitchen by Mike uh, model and all of the things that you've done since. Tell us about that revelation that you had with food. Yeah. Joss's mum lives in Wales on this huge organic farm, and um, they're, they're totally self-sufficient. Um, they grow all their own livestock, um, their own produce. They make their own power. Um, and, and it's just, it was um, back in 2009 when we had our third little boy, William, we, we decided to take a sabbatical and go back to the UK because at the time we didn't know whether we wanted to live in Australia or whether we wanted to live in the UK. So we based ourselves on this huge farm we sent our, our boys to the local village school to, to learn Welsh of all languages. Um, I, I don't know if they remember much Welsh 
these days, but <laughs> it was it was nice for them to be in this tiny little village school, and we just lived off off the property. Um, you know, the huge kitchen garden there. Um, they were growing. Um, they, they had some. Um, they, they were growing um, a couple of different types of livestock. They had um, saddleback pigs at that time. Um, they had lots of different chickens. They had some. Um, they had some longhorn um, beef beef cattle. They had some um, some Welsh speckle faced uh, lambs, and it was just amazing understanding um, that side. And then, really, the also how's this one? I'd never built before in my entire life. I'm pretty crap at it, but I built this enormous brick oven. Took me over three months to build, Um, and I used to fire it up every second, well, every third day actually, um, at two o'clock in the morning. I'd fire up this oven, let it let it burn for five hours to get hot enough. Then I'd bake thirty kilos of hand kneaded sourdough. Um, and sell it in the school car park <laughs> at school drop-off in the morning. And the thing about it was back in those days, 2009, the, the people of Wales were used to buying bread in a – that was white, it was sliced, and it was in a plastic bag. They'd never really seen sourdough in this lost village of Wales. So the first time I went to sell the bread, I didn't sell any. People looked at it and thought, wow, what's that, a, a rock or <laughs> – then um, the next next time I sold a couple more, and then um, and then we we um, from then on people used to come to the farmhouse and pick up their bread that they pre-ordered. So that was that was an amazing experience for me to make this brick oven from scratch using mathematical equations I'd learned at school, but was bored by them. Like who'd have thought you'd use the ellipse formula in real life? But here I was building these frames to to um, build bricks around for the arches. Um, so it was. It was really nice to, to, to pull out these equations. <laughs> um, but there was another part of it. There was this huge, um, this huge kitchen garden that we lived off. But at the top of the kitchen garden was this roped-off area that we weren't allowed to touch. And there were these four beds in this roped-off area. And I saw all these amazing herbs. Um, I could see coriander, I could see gooseberries, I could see oregano and a few other things in there. And I asked my mother-in-law, Sue, what, what, why don't we use those beds? What's, they, they look amazing. And she goes, well, I rent those beds to the white witch in the village. And I thought, oh, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> it's a Hippocratic garden. She's following the four humours of the body. So sanguine, melancholic, phlegmatic. So she, those herbs, she was, they were medicinal herbs for her, but for me, they were culinary herbs. And it was something that I was fascinated with from that moment on. Um, so much so that when I opened Kitchen by Mike in 2012, um, a year after opening, we planted um, a, a, an urban physic garden um, in the car park, uh, which we lived and bred. Uh, and really, really got excited by teaching people. We had all the plaques in there, so you could walk in there. And we chose five beds. We only had space for five beds, so we had a gastroenterology bed. Uh, we had a dermatology bed, a ears, nose, and throat. Uh, we had a cardiology bed, a neurology. Bed. So it was, it was exciting um, to educate people that about everyday food and what it can do for you when you're eating it. And I guess that was a big driver behind the second cookbook that I wrote, Real Food by Mike, where it was, 
you know, if if your child's got worms, then give it some more oregano. <laughs> Basic things like this, you know, it's it's about using everyday ingredients. As long as you know what it's doing for, for you, um, then you can use them to your advantage. So, yeah, that was my time in in Wales in 2009, and um, it was exciting for me. There's many parts of your career that we could discuss, but Kitchen by Mike had such an impact and the way that it operated. Tell us about the idea behind it and and what it took from a food perspective to deliver that such the feast for so many people. Yeah, well, you know, it it for me, um, I I cooked at some pretty amazing restaurants in my in my career, um, and I just I just thought, well, we got back. We, we never found Utopia in the UK, by the way. We came back. <laughs> Uh, we came back because at that chapter in our life, uh, it was about the kids um, and where else can you bring him to the beach after school every day but in Sydney. So we, we came back and I made the decision when we came back um, not to work for the man again. It was my turn to do something for me. So I, I, I decided to throw in the tile of cooking for a little bit and I baked at Iggy's for nearly a year in Bronte in their first place on on Belgrave Street and I learnt a lot but there was a time there where my wife gave me a punch on the shoulder and said Mike you're a chef <laughs> you're not a baker you need to earn a little bit more money there's five of us in this family <laughs> get on with it um, so I went and knocked on my good friend Andrew Force's door this um, huge antique warehouse that he had in Surrey Hills. And I said, look, let's have a dinner party. You invite 20 people, I'll invite 20. And um, let's get on with it. So I brought, I went to the market that Friday, um, chose really great produce. I didn't know what I was going to order. I didn't, I didn't write a menu. I decided to let the produce tell me what to cook. And then um, I came back on Saturday and did a bit of prep. And then Sunday, we hired a three-ton truck, emptied out the um, the back of his warehouse left left some tables there. I used my grandmother's silverware and begged, borrowed, stole plates, and we did this five course dinner party for friends using um, a little three ring burner um, that I hired from Pages, a plate warmer, and a little turbo fan oven that I borrowed, and and a fi- and, and a wine match, and it was just a really incredible time because Andrew's friends. <clears throat> Well, we didn't realise that his friends knew my friends and my friends knew his friends. So it was an incredible night. And that set the tone for the next 12 months where we did these illegal pop-up called Mike's Table at the back of his place um, every sun- second Sunday night where you, got a, you didn't know what you are eating. You had to order, you had to book, sorry, um, on Twitter. This is when Twitter was big. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is uh, yeah, 2009, 2010. Um, you had to be referred by a friend because it was illegal. We didn't have a liquor license. We didn't have a council approval. But um, we were booked out, you know, months and months and months in advance for you to come and eat five courses. You didn't know what you were going to eat. We really didn't have much room for dietaries. And, um, and that was an incredible time. And during that time, we found this space um, in this huge uh, building um, that was there making rosella soup at the beginning of the 19th 1900s that was a rosella soup factory and then it got changed later on that year to aristocrat uh, gaming machines of all things 
then it was empty for ages and it was this huge space. It was 2,000 square metres inside with, with um, quite a lot of outdoor area that could be used. And um, the, I went in partnership with uh, some furniture people that wanted the majority of the space, but they left me 600 square metres in, inside and, and some outdoor areas. So I, I looked at the space and I just thought, my God, this is huge. This is going to be a huge restaurant as I know it. What well, really? What what are you going to do here? What can you do? And I sat on the floor for for weeks, just thinking, "Shit, Mike, you've signed this this agreement to do something here. Time's ticking. What are you going to do?" And then it came to me that that space was a factory. There would have been a canteen where people would have sat next to each other and had a cup of tea and chatted about the day. And it just dawned upon me, why don't you open a canteen where where a rich man can stand next to poor man and eat the same food. You don't, it doesn't matter. There's no pomp and ceremony. There's no waiter service. You're getting this, the same food, whatever you order. And it just, it just, it, what it did, it, it enabled me basically to have freedom of thought and freedom of produce and not worry too much about the, 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 the gross overheads of huge labor bills and stuff. We were, it was kitchen ran pretty much with a couple of guys on the on the floor clearing tables and someone on the till and and it worked it worked from day one it meant that I could use small producers I didn't have a menu I'd go to the market a couple of times a week I'd go there and buy what was in its prime and obviously when you buy food that's in season in its prime it's at the best price so we would get the food back to Kitchen by Mike in Rosebury. We'd, we'd ride a menu around the, the, the booty that we'd found and, and off we'd go and uh, you'd queue up with your, with your tin plate. Uh, we'd, we'd put some lamb on there or some pork or some chicken and then you'd choose a couple of salads with it. you pay at the till, you sit down, the cutlery was on the table, you eat and you go. It was a really fast sequence. But it just meant that I could charge a good price for food not an overpriced for food because it meant that they weren't paying for all the pomp and ceremony of a restaurant. So I just wanted to bring great food to everyone and that was the, the chance that I could do that and it, and it worked. So that was, that was yeah, Kitchen by Mike and how that was, was found and seen um, in my eyes. One of, one of the signature dishes at Kitchen by Mike is your amazing pork belly. Tell, tell us about that dish. Oh, uh, look, do you know, um, at back, back in 2012, pork belly wasn't expensive. Um, and there was quite a bit of it around because most people were using pork chops or they were using, you know, shoulders or, or legs in, in other guises. But belly wasn't quite on the money back then. So we were able to pick up some really great pork from, um, from different people. And it just made sense to us. Um, in the format that we were serving, we were able to cook whole bellies. Um, so we'd obviously brine it for overnight. Then we'd, we'd confit it um, slowly um, overnight in the, in the wood oven that we had there because it was, was cooling down. It was cool enough to leave it in the door. We'd leave it in the door overnight, just confiting in, in fat. And then the next day, um, we'd lift it out and we'd press it in the cool room. And then it was ready to go. So it was a, look, it was a, a number of days process, but for me it was worth it because then all we had to do was when the oven, when the wood-fired oven was hot, sling in gastro trays of whole pork bellies. They'd come out super crispy. And then we'd just chop them all up and 
put them back on a chopping board and we'd have 20 portions of pork belly up on the pass and before you knew it, we'd have a new one going back up. And it was, it just worked for the format. We could just run a knife down the middle and then cross it over the other way with, with cutting crispy, crispy slices of pork belly and it was just, it just, it just happened. And, um, and we loved it and we'd often serve it with lots of different things that we'd find in the market. We'd make quince relish. We'd make different chutneys. We'd make piccalilli and, and all these other amazing little condiments that we'd, we'd find ingredients for and just, just make wonderful things to serve with that pork. Um, and, it, yeah, that's <laughs> there's the pork belly story. Pretty amazing. I, I, I do love pork belly, but um, I must say, if you have a chance to cook it, it really makes the difference cooking it slow overnight in the coffee. It, it really renders everything down. And then giving it that pressing also gives it a nice firm texture. So, yeah, a couple of steps in there, which I think are, are crucial for a great pork belly. Tell us about some of the connections that you've made with producers. Are there um, farmers and pork farmers out there that you've um, made connections with to um, enable you to do what you do? Oh, sure. Yeah, look, there's, there's always been plenty of people who we love dealing uh, dealing with. Um, you know, we, we were using Kurabuda a lot back in early um, 2012, 13 and 14. Um, we found that a, a really great stable product it was good to use it was consistent but a company a, a, a farm who i really enjoyed using and, and we were using them back at Rockpool back in in um back in the day um and it was a grant from feather and bone before he really formed feather and bone was was picking up pigs from melanda park and that was kind of his shtick. He had these pigs that he was giving to Sean because he was um, he was waiting at Sean's at the time, and he'd also we'd also order some Melander Park suckling pigs from him at the time. So I I'd, I'd understood the quality of, of them, and then um, and then obviously being the creative director at Carriageworks Farmers Market, Melander Park, they're they're a, they're a big part of of the community at, at the market. They they create incredible pork. They really do, and um, so yeah. Look, if if you're in Sydney, um, definitely come to the markets on a Saturday. They're there every Saturday, and you can buy uh, from those guys, and it's 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 incredible. It's it's a really great product. So yeah, that that Melander Park, I guess, I've had a long time sort of um, relationship with those guys, um, and it's been a pleasure. You mentioned uh, Rockpool and the incredible influence, actually, that you had there um, before this whole change that you had as well. What, what, what lured you originally to a career in hospitality? Uh, <laughs> bloody hell, here we go. So when I was at school, I did pretty well in my HSE, and, um, but what, what I decided, but my mother was a, a, a taskmaster and she made my sister and I get a job while we were at, from from really from year 10 onwards, my sister and I had to have a job because we had to pay board. My mother made us pay board. And it was, I guess it was this thing, to, it wasn't a lot of money. Back then it was $30 a week. A lot of money for a young kid, I guess. But the, the point of it was, was that don't take anything for granted. Things do cost. Things don't just happen. You, you've got to understand the value of this. And, and it taught me a lot of value. So... 
during sort of later times of studying, I was working at the Black Stump washing pots. That was my job, dish pig, Black Stump. And I sort of, they also had me sort of plating up some stuff there and I understood what was happening in a kitchen, but I never thought I'd be a chef. But during that time at school also, I got my, both my parents worked. So I was cooking at home a bit um, because I, I got sick of eating late at night. After, you know, so at 8.30 we were eating because both of them got home late from work. And it was the same, it was the same food that we were eating. It was great food, but I got bored of it. So I started cooking a little bit at home and my mum was pretty intelligent. She bought some cookbooks for me to be inspired from and I cooked some meals at home as well. So I, I, I enjoyed cooking, but it was never a career for me. I, I kind of wanted to do commerce. Um, I was interested in business and numbers. But then I decided just before the before everything started that I didn't want to take my spot, that I'm not an academic, that I wanted to do something else. So I bummed around for about three weeks or so, and then I decided um, I was reading the newspaper one morning. I saw on the employment page a, a photograph of a chef, and he was in his talk with his white chef's jacket and his neckerchief on. This is this is 1990, uh, 8990. So, you know, back in the day when when Australia wanted to be like France Michelin-starred restaurants and have these fancy-looking chefs, but we really were so far away that we didn't really understand what it meant. And I thought, wow, I, I could be a chef. So I, I got a job at a restaurant. I basically um, I, I wrote a letter to Shay Oz in, the, in um, Darlinghurst at the time, which was a really great restaurant. They said, come in for an interview. I got the job, and on my first day at Shay Oz, um, the, the head chef said, Mike, here's your... Here's your, um, here's your recipe book. Here's the menu. You're on cold larder and pastry. Have, the me- have it ready for lunch. And it's like, what, what do you mean? Who, who am I helping? You're not helping anyone. That's what you're doing. And for the first two weeks, I, I think I'm on my way home. And I was, living in, I was living out at Glen Haven at that time with my parents um, out, out near Dural. And I used to have to drive to Darlinghurst six days a week i'd start at eight in the morning so i'd leave before six in the morning this is pre-harbour tunnel so the traffic was huge at that time so i'd be working six doubles a week i was doing 100 hour weeks and i didn't think anything of it i i kind of started to get upset that i wasn't seeing my friends and i was tired and i i didn't have a girlfriend anymore and stuff but what i was enjoying was learning but on the way home in the first two weeks in the car i guess i i was i was in tears because I made so many mistakes. I didn't know what a souffle was. I had no idea what a genoise was or, or what bechamel sauce was. You know, I, I, I had no idea. And here I was making these really incredible recipes and making every mistake under the sun. But after two weeks, I didn't make any more mistakes because I'd already made them all. And after that, I, I, I blitzed it and I moved up in the kitchen. I went onto the grill and I had a really incredible time at Shales. But after nine months, I'd had enough. I wanted to see friends. I wanted to enjoy my life. So I decided to walk to Rockpool in my break one day. I prepped really hard in the morning so I didn't have to do any prep in the Arvo. And off I, I walked um, to the Rockpool from Darlinghurst. And I knocked on the door and Neil answered and I asked if he had a job and he 
he said, no, um, come in, come in, have, let's have a chat. And this was, he'd been open for maybe six to nine months. It was early days for him, but I knew about it. I'd heard about Rockpool. I heard what he was doing and, um, you know, it, it was it was something which I, I thought, wow, this this could be exciting. And he said, well, where are you working, Mike? And I said, oh, I work at Shayos. And he goes, oh, well, that's a great restaurant. How, how many shifts are you working there? What, what are you doing? I said, oh, I do six doubles a week. And he said, oh, great. When can you start? <laughs> so, so I started there and, um, yeah, right from nineteen uh, mid-1990 right through to sort of 95, 96, I, I worked through his kitchens and was um, executive sous chef there. And then we opened the Star Grill in the IMAX cinema where he made me his head chef there, which was exciting. And then I knew at that moment that it was time that I had to learn other things. I didn't know everything. And here I was in this very senior role, but I, I was worried that I didn't have all the answers if people asked me questions. I, I wanted to know the answers. I wanted to earn those stripes. And I didn't think that after cooking for five, six years that I could be an executive chef. I didn't think that I, I was due the credit. So um, I, I handed my notice and I traveled for 12 months through Europe. Um, staging at some pretty amazing restaurants and just camping. I had a tent and I and I had a suit of all things. So I'd walk out of my tent in a suit and walk to a really incredible restaurant because that's really all, all I was traveling for. I was traveling to learn the culture, the history, look at art galleries and, and look at look at beautiful churches and, and stuff, but also to eat great food. So how would I save money? Well, don't stay at a great, great hotel. Camp. Save money that way and, and use your money to eat. So <laughs> that was the story at Rockpool. Well, um, Christmas is around the corner and you're going to be in cooler climes for it. But Christmas hams are generally on the table. Is that something that you do? Oh, every Christmas, whether I'm in Australia or the UK, we have ham. There's no question. So what we usually do is... Um, in, in Australia, we have a lighter sort of lunch. We'll have seafood and always have a ham on the table. But in the UK, um, they usually grow turkeys in the village. But we'll have a turkey this year and a local ham that will probably come from um, one of the saddlebacks that, um, that uh, my father-in-law used to grow on the farm. He pushed them out to other farmers. So they, uh, there's quite a lot of saddlebacks in the village. So we'll have a leg of ham from one of the saddlebacks and and ham for us is on christmas day but the, the actual ham meal that we really love is the boxing day meal so it's a big procession to eat ham on the boxing day and it's it's because boxing day is boxing day is one of the days for us where you've you've woken up you've done all the trudge of christmas day cooking and stuff now you just enjoy the day you might read the new book that you've got lucky you with the new book next to the fire and stuff but what we do for lunch is we get the glazed ham, we, we warm it slightly in the oven, we serve it sliced, and we serve it with mashed potato, usually some braised cabbage, red cabbage, or, or some leaves from the garden if there are any, but with Cumberland sauce. And that is every Boxing Day lunch, whether I'm in Australia or whether I'm in, I'm in England, it's ham and Cumberland sauce. And I love it. 
I've, I absolutely love it. It's the highlight. I actually, I actually like Boxing Day lunch more so than Christmas Day sometimes because it, it is that wonderful ham with that lovely piquant sauce of Cumberland and, and um, some warm mashed potato. It's, it's hard to beat. After the um, couple of years that uh, we've all had, um, how, how's it feeling to be over there for, for Christmas this year? Well, um, at the at the moment, I'm I'm at my father-in-law's in Jersey, and um, and it's starting to ramp up here. Christmas, you know, there's there's Christmas decorations in the street, and you can tell people are starting to get in the celebrations. It's it's quite lax over here. That not a lot of people are wearing masks. Most people are over it, and they're just celebrating. They're having a fun time. I guess um, we're we're heading to we'll, we'll go to London for a few days now. Um, on Sunday, and then we'll be in Wales by about the 18th, and that's when Christmas will really hit home for us. We'll go out into the woods. They've got a massive pine forest, and what we used to do is we used to cut a um, a tree, but but we've stopped cutting trees because we usually find incredible branches in the pine forest that we'll we'll, we'll um, carry back to the house and we'll decorate the the branch. Uh, with with decorations, um, and it's a real incredible time. Christmas um, in the English countryside. It's cold, it's bleak. You want to sit by the fire. You want to enjoy a, a beautiful glass of port. Um, you're usually making mince pies um, from scratch. We love making mince pies, and and I guess it becomes really it, it's real when you're making incredible short crust pastry and you're using suet. Uh, in the short crust pastry because you have suet you know these farms you, you have suet because your 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 cattle produces suet so you use suet in your cooking and you use these old types of cooking methods which honestly the suet inside the short crust it makes it slightly shorter you get this incredible crumbly texture and then you you know people have their own you know family recipes of making different mince meat recipes and stuff and really lovely it's a it's a really it's a tradition um and that's what i really love about um coming back to europe at christmas time there's that real tradition of 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 centuries and centuries of of eating food from farms and family tradition it's it's a wonderful thing um it, it makes my heart sing and really inspires me to to cook you'll be opening a kitchen by mike in the early part of 2022 how, how does it feel to get to that stage do you know it's it's been a it's been a really tough couple of years i think we were lucky enough to to make the the um the the, the change to doing the ready meals um which have helped us not only last year but it helped us pivot again this year when gladys closed us all so we've been doing ready meals ever since um until uh, last week when we, we sent our last box out for a little while. We'll stop on those for a bit. We're doing Christmas events at the moment in the city. Uh, we've, we've booked out. Uh, we're doing a couple of parties a day for private events for Christmas. And we're loving that. That's, that's a real special thing because these, the people that have made the bookings are our long-term, our long-term customers that have always come to us and shown us support so for us to be able to close the restaurant and only open for them and their friends and and cook a really a a, a really generous sort of generous lunch which is really caring and 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 we focus on giving them really delicious food to share and 
nothing too heavy, nothing too light, a good wine list, and, and we just let them take the space. And it's, so it's a really lovely thing to do that, not to have the stress of opening in the city at the moment, because in the city where we are, it's, there's, there's very few people still. There's people in there right now in December because they're going to Christmas parties. But really, if you look two weeks ago, our building alone where we are, it was less than 7% occupancy. And people in the city, down, down our end in the CBD, in the business district, people really don't come back in the city until after Australia Day. Most people go on holidays after Christmas. They've got, their kids are off, at, off school, so it's, it's school holidays. So people don't come back into town too early. So we're going to sort of slowly open um, uh, in the new year, but not in a big hurry. We've got to be careful. Um, it's not easy at this time really choosing the right time to open. And we're also doing an amazing thing. We're, we're doing the Westpac Open Air Cinema again at Mrs Macquarie's chair. So we, we, we man that. We totally do the catering for all areas in there. So we've got three different areas where you can eat at. We've got the, the point, um, which is an out, outside area that, that holds 600 people plus an extra 400 standing room, which we're doing a, a, a Mexican taqueria uh, where you can order really simple Mexican food and, and have a beer or a, a Hendrix cocktail down there. And then we've, we're doing a, a lounge um, uh, um, up the top, which is a sort of a kitchen by Mike sit-down restaurant. And then we're doing the garden area where you can choose some of the kitchen by Mike classics and eat off of, you know, the, the traditional falconware plate, you know, some roast chicken, some pumpkin and some cucumber salad. Um, all of the classics will be on there. So there's 1,500 people a day that we see through there. They come in at six. The movie starts just after eight. So it's a real... It's a real honed experience where you're dealing with a lot of customers very quickly. But it's so exciting and we love being part of it. And, you know, um, Rob and the team at CineRent who do the cinema really get some great films on. And I love our partnership that we formed there with different sponsors. And, and it's a really great opportunity for us to, I guess, leave our comfort zone and do something really exciting for Sydney. It's... I think it's one of the, one of Sydney's great events where you can watch a movie on the harbour, look at the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House behind it. And for us to be part of that is is very important to me. So it's exciting. Well, Mike, it's always an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. Um, have a wonderful Christmas over there, and we'll see you back over here in the new year. I can't wait, and I'll I'll see you very soon. And and everyone out there, happy Christmas to you all. And uh, make sure you glaze your ham and serve with Cumberland sauce. lots of love guys this is The Crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstar I'm Anthony Huckstep stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special